Wave pool technology is progressing at a rapid rate, and commercially surfable wave pools are opening around the world. Welcome to the Wave Pool Mag podcast. My name is Nick Robinson, and through my guests, we take a detailed look at this fascinating new game. Check us out on wavepoolmag.com. For your curiosity and stoke. Hey guys, it's Nick coming to you from a warm and autumnal Algarve in Portugal. The swell is picking up down here and I managed a great session the other day. These glassy beauties were just peeling off a hard sand spit. Quite stoked again after a long break because it's been a long, flat summer. Anyway, the other day I called up Australia and got to chat to Andrew Ross from Urban Surf. It was a great conversation. Not just because he's such a down-to-earth, relaxed professional, but because he's opening one of the first two wave garden coves in the world. It's quite tense watching both Bristol and Melbourne, as I do, releasing titbits on social media about the boxes they're ticking and the milestones they're hitting and gliding by. It certainly isn't always smooth sailing producing a massive surf park like these guys are doing. But uh, let's dig deep into Andrew Ross's life and find out how urban surf came to be. Welcome to the Wavepool Mag podcast. We're really excited to have you here. And obviously you guys are doing some pretty crazy things right now. How was your day today? Uh, busy day. It has been for the last 18 months or so for us. We uh, uh, successfully filled the lagoon the other week. Uh, we had a couple of issues with our hydraulic system today. So we're just working through those. But um, we're right on track for Wave Garden to come down and start the wet commissioning uh, in the coming days. So it's all very exciting for us. So you're in, um, you're in, per- uh, in Melbourne right now, huh? Yes, absolutely. Uh, it's been my home Monday to Friday for the last uh, probably 14 or 15 weeks now, although I'm, I'm based in Perth normally. So I, I fly home to Perth on the weekends. It's like going home for a holiday, uh, although my wife and my two kids don't feel uh, that it's so great. But uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's uh, how it's been the last little while. Okay, so I understand. So that's why you probably went to Melbourne and uh, Melbourne University, is that correct? Um, back in the 80s. Sorry, Actually, Perth University, Murdoch no, University. That's it. Yeah, exactly. So my, I, I was actually born in Victoria. Uh, my family are from Geelong and Lawn. Uh, Lawn's down on the Great Ocean Road on the surf coast there. And uh, we moved to Perth when I was very young for my dad's work. Um, so I'm basically a Perth guy. I, I did all my schooling in Perth, went to university there, and then uh, worked in Perth for about five years before traveling to London and, and worked over there for a while. Okay, but take us back to the Murdoch University days. What did you get out of that experience mm. apart from a business and a law degree? Well, um, I guess I, I really enjoyed university. I, I found it uh, an incredible experience. I've got a lot of mates uh, from uni days that I, I'm still in you know, close contact with. Um, I found uh, a law degree was really interesting. I'd, I'd always known that I wanted to be a lawyer from about uh, the age of 14 or 15. But what a law degree teaches you, it's, it's a, a, the ability to look at and solve problems in a very logical way. It also adds on crazy things like um, you know different uh, case law that you need to remember and and all those sorts of items. But I guess I moved out of law after about five years of being a, a pure lawyer. But all the skills that you learn as a lawyer are quite useful in business for helping you solve complex problems. So um, I took a lot out of that. I also uh, damaged my liver quite severely all the way through university. I was the <laughs> sports captain of the, of the law school. And uh, I was, uh, yeah, I was always found 
quite close to the keg on Fridays at uh, the sundowners that we'd have. The sports captain, what so, kind of sports um, was that? Was it surfing in those days as well? Yeah, but yeah, absolutely. Surfing's been a lifelong passion, but um, I was I played uh, hockey for the at a state level, and uh, but as sports captain, I had to be there on the field for every sport we participate in as a law school. Um, so I had to play Australian rules football, and I remember I'd never played it before, and uh, they put me in the ruck. That looks crazy. I mean, people yeah. climbing on each other's backs yeah. and stuff, and, and wearing shirts. Oh, absolutely. No shirts. What yeah, are, yeah, yeah. Sleeveless shirts. That's the. No, yeah, it's crazy. It's a, it's a full and it's a pretty intense uh, sport, that's for sure. But um, yeah, I went up in the ruck, and my very first tap, I, I broke a finger, so I, I was p- totally not suited to being an AFL player. But, uh, <laughs> no, uni, uni days were uni days were amazing. I had a had an awesome time there. Yeah, I had a couple of broken collarbones from rugby at school as well, so a similar kind of scenario ah, okay. down in South Africa. Yes. But um, any yes. favorite surf sports in your youth? Wow, we did a lot of exploring. So in those days, that was sort of the mid '80s. Um, um, a lot of down south around the Margaret River region wasn't really known and wasn't really explored to a great extent. And uh, we'd spend time. I had a kind of a close group of surfing buddies, and we'd spend time just driving down bush tracks and seeing what we could find at the end of them. And I, I reckon we must have done every single bush track on that southwest coast, and and I guess discovered waves that now we'd know as left-handers and umbies and places like the womb and um, those sort of out of the way type of places. Um, but yeah, that was that was a really great period of time. And there's some pretty good waves north of Perth as well, up around Lancelin Way and Ledge Point. And we spent a lot of time sort of sleeping in the dunes behind there, getting up for surfs and just having remote beaches to ourselves and waves to ourselves, which was uh, amazing. Awesome. That's a serious privilege, isn't it, to look back on and have that? Yeah, absolutely. But now that re- that uh, region's got a pretty much a bad rep for shark infestation, hasn't it? Yeah, like I, I got to say, I, I haven't, I hadn't worried about sharks for the first thirty years of my surfing journey, and I've been surfing for thirty-eight years now. And I, in the last six or seven, eight years, every single surf I have in Perth, I worry, and particularly if I'm out with my eleven-year-old son. Uh, or my my nine year old daughter, um, it just seems something's changed in the water. They just the, the sharks are just more prevalent for some reason. I've had I had had not seen a shark in thirty odd years of surfing, and I've had one to two encounters with sharks every year in the last say five years. I've been chased in by a massive great white at Lefties just on News Day a couple of years ago. Um, you know, and every surfer now in Perth and down south. It was never a topic you'd ever talk about. You'd never talk about sharks, but it's almost the first topic people now speak about, and it's just so it's definitely got worse. You reckon? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I don't know what it is. I, I have this theory, and it's not supported by any data or science or anything. But I guess you know we protected whales twenty odd years, thirty years ago, maybe. Uh, sea lions and seals have been protected in the last twenty odd years. In Western Australia, we were pulling. Uh, sharks out of the water through fishery activities, um, something like 20,000 sharks a year up until about uh, 20 years ago. And so I think what we've got is just this uh, perfect storm at the apex of the food chain in the ocean where we've got uh, particularly whites that don't reach breeding maturity for 15 to 20 years, I think. We've got a whole bunch more sharks left in the ocean that haven't been fished for. We've got 
uh, their main food groups are now protected and are not being uh, populations aren't being destroyed. And so I just think there's something happening there, which is allow which means there's more sharks and bigger sharks in the ocean. So it's just it's a thought. I don't know if it's backed by any research or data, but it just feels something like an explanation. Well, it sounds logical to me. I mean, I mean, we have this similar problem down in Cape Town, South Africa, where I'm from. And um, mm. I go back surf there now, and um, you just see signs all over the place saying, beware of the sharks, watch the shark flags. And as long as there's people out, I feel okay. But um, yeah, I never used to think about it as a kid. I don't think we even knew there were sharks. But they must... No, I mean, it's, well, you know, we uh, maybe six or seven years ago, I remember I was on my boat with my mates and we zipped across to Strickland Bay, which is an amazing uh, break of A-frame, right and left. Left's probably a bit better than the right. Over at Rottnest Island, uh, a remote break. It's a big, gnarly reef break, Southern Ocean break. Uh, can hold up to 15 to 18 foot. And um, we heard on the news that a, a, sh- a whale carcass had washed up in the bay next around from Stricko's. So we thought, eh, should we go there or not? And we decided, well, look, if there was other people in the water, we would go and surf. If there wasn't, we we maybe we wouldn't. And we turned up, and there was like 14 boats there. There was like 35 guys in the water, and we all jumped out. And it was a, a massive day. It was just heaving. It was awesome surf. And literally sitting out the back, we could look down the bay about four or 500 meters away and see the thrashing in the water of all these different sharks just devouring this whale carcass. And we thought, well, you know, it's fine. They they're eating down there. They're not going to bother us. And you know, it's all these kind of crazy you know, myths that we try and reassure ourselves with and reassure our wives that, you know, sharks don't eat you in the middle of the day. They don't attack over the top of sand. Um, there's only certain times of the year, maybe when the salmon are running or something that, you know, you see them. Um, if they bite you, they realize really quickly that you're not uh, part of their normal food group. And, you know, maybe it'll be a nasty bite, but, you know, they won't come back and get you. And unfortunately, we had an attack... Um, up near Lancelin a couple of years ago now, a kid on a boogie board, and uh, all of those myths were just destroyed. You know, the shark game came in uh, over the top of sand. There was jet skis burning around everywhere. Didn't care about that. Chomped him and kind of came back and finished him off as well. So it was, um, yeah, it was, it's, it's a difficult time in some ways to being a surfer in, on the West Coast. And I know there's a lot of guys my age who do have kids and responsibilities and those sorts of things now that, none of them really surf as much as they did um, because of the shark issue. So. But I mean, you're totally right. Animals in general are totally unpredictable. I mean, I spent two years in African mm. bush as a um, driving safaris. And um, mm. it's incredible. You know, you think you have these rules and these laws and you see these see these animals every single day and they get a, a level of behavior that you become accustomed to. And then suddenly, whack, something happens, total anomaly. But anyway, yeah. so in 99, yeah, you headed out for London and Moscow, right? Is, how did that opportunity come about? Yeah, I'd, I'd been working as a lawyer for five years and um, tax lawyer and uh, had done all right. And uh, my partners in the firm actually offered me a partnership at a young age at 27 or 8, I think it was. And I could at that moment see myself doing exactly the same work for the next 40 years ahead of me. And I'd always see myself working abroad. So I thanked them for their offer, but just packed my bags and uh, went to London. So I, I spent six months traveling the continent over the summer and came back to London, thought, wow, I'm this hotshot young lawyer, I'll be able to get a job, no problem. But I didn't have the right visa, really, and no one really wanted an Australian tax lawyer in uh, London. 
So I scrounged for so long to try and get a job. I applied for laboring jobs out in Slough, bartending. I was too overqualified. And then uh, ultimately, through some friends, I was introduced to some ex-Australian uh, guys who were running an oil company over there, which had operations in Moscow, in Russia, and uh, went and met with them, and they felt there was a role that I could fulfill for them, and that sort of started the journey in the oil and gas game. So I spent uh, four or five years in London uh, working predominantly in oil and gas, um, although the latter part, I took up a role as a director of an investment bank, uh, which advised the oil company that I was uh, legal counsel for. So I sort of moved more into a corporate finance role when that company relocated its offices to Moscow. And I'd, I'd been commuting and working in Moscow, but I didn't want to live there. It was, back in those days, it was still pretty uh, uh, wild, wild west. What is it, um, early 2000s or? Yeah, early 2000s. You know, lots of crazy stories where you'd have you know, negotiations with Russian lawyers over an asset and they'd turn up at the meeting in their old, dusty, flea-bitten suits and they'd be pulling themselves up to the table and you'd hear this kind of bang, bang, bang as they're pulling themselves up and they're packing heat. They, they've got guns in their pockets and you're going, shit, this is going to be a quick negotiation. <laughs> but it's one of the um, most violent countries in the world. I mean, if you look at the Global Peace Index, it's absolutely. not doing well. Not doing well. No, not at all. No. And and it's, it's actually a really interesting example of where capitalism needs to have that equal and opposite balance of the rule of law. And it was a very stark and terrible example, actually, where if you have just rampant capitalism without those controls, without proper police, without proper judges and a legal system and the ability to resolve disputes, it just forms just total anarchy. And that really was what Russia was back in those days. Um, uh, you know, we, there was lots and lots of crazy things that happened. Um, but anyway, that was... That was a, a pretty fun experience for a young bloke back then. So working for the oil and gas industry, do you reckon that's at odds with, uh, with your surf projects now? Because like from an environmental point of view. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, a, it's a question that I contemplated for a long time. So I spent about 10 years working as an oil and gas exec. And by the end of that period of time, I really was starting to fall a bit out of love with the industry. And it was for a couple of reasons. I really enjoyed the people I was working with. They're very, very clever, and people in the oil and gas space are, uh, you know, terrific um, uh, people to work around and to learn from and the like. But it, as we started to get into fracking and trying to develop uh, non-conditional or unconventional resources, um, it felt like we were just devoting so much time, money, brain power to extracting these hydrocarbon resources from rocks that really shouldn't be rocks that I perceived as a reservoir and shouldn't really be giving it up. And I started thinking, well, shouldn't we be turning that brain power to renewable sources of energy and, and sources of energy that was perhaps more environmentally friendly? So I guess over a period of time, I got to a point and thought, well, actually, I don't know this is for me anymore. I'd turned 40 and I'd run a couple of companies at that point and thought, well, I'm actually going to take a year off and travel with the family. I'd been working away a lot. We had operating assets in the US Gulf Coast and offshore in the UK and had a big field onshore in France and um, just felt that I needed to sort of recalibrate and reset and literally as soon as I made that decision I came across this news article where Kelly Slater was in a patent dispute with Greg Weber over a wave pool design and that started the journey. So rather than it just being a mere thought bubble I uh, actually contacted Kelly's group 
and found out a little more about what they were doing and contacted Greg and met with him in Sydney because I was over there presenting at a conference and um, learnt about what he was doing. And through that process of discovery, I, I found out about WaveGarden. And at that point, WaveGarden had only just put up, I think, one video, which was that terrible agricultural video of Mick and maybe, was it Wilco or... Yeah, uh, like was that. it Owen Wright? No, it wasn't Owen Wright, I don't think. Oh, maybe, no, maybe it was Owen. Yeah. Maybe it was Owen. The black liner so and all that. that. Black plastic. Yeah, 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 yeah. The black plastic one getting washed up over the edge. And I thought, mm. oh, my God. You know, but I spoke to the Wave Garden guys. This was about um, August, September 2012. I spoke to them on the phone, and after an hour's conversation, I thought, actually, these guys sound really real. Um I found myself in Europe shortly thereafter on business anyway, and they invited me down to their facility in Spain. And so, what did it feel like when you let's like times. really drill into that to that, that travel travel uh, story? Because mm. um, I've been up to Wave Garden as well, and it's an exciting place. And um, so, when you were yeah. flying down, or were you were you driving down to Spain, or how did you get there? I was yeah, I was in London anyway, so I flew down and arrived in Bilbao, and um, I'd been to San Sebastian many times. It's a, one of my favourite places in Europe anyway. And so, yeah, I remember catching up uh, with the guys in San Sebastian. Uh, Fernando Otrusola picked me up, their commercial director. Oh, they didn't take you and, to the uh, to the headquarters? Uh, well, no, they did. So Fernando drove me from San Sebastian down to Zaral, and we had breakfast on the beach there. And uh, he was explaining to me the maritime history of, of that northern part of Spain and, and then took me out to uh, Asenathal, the, uh, the R&D centre, and uh, at that point, they'd just built the two-thirds scale um, wave foil-based lagoon. Okay. And uh, they'd built it under cover of darkness. No one even knew that they'd done it. And, was that the uh, second one they built? Up. Because they built the first one. And uh, then... No, it was the first one. Okay. It was the first one. Yeah. So um, they, uh, yeah, they uh, showed me around. And, and I think actually Gab and Taj might have been there that day as well. Because I, I think the... The European tour was on at that at that point, September. So it would have been, yeah. And um, yeah, they fired up the wave generator, and I saw these great little, you know, two two maybe three foot waves rolling through, and and the guys just whacking them, and and they invited me to go in on the left, and I, I think Taj was surfing the right. And I paddled into my first wave there, and I have to say I was I was really quite skeptical because I think the day before I was surfing in France, I paddled out at uh, La Gravière. I remember the power and the force of the wave hitting my board and I thought well this would be a fun experience and my cynical investment banking head said yeah they won't have cracked the nut this would just be a, a bit of a novelty but as I kind of pushed out through the waves I thought wow this is the same sort of broken wave force hitting my board that I saw at La Gravière and then once I paddled into the first wave dropped in kind of did five or six turns kicked out and went holy shit they've They've done it. This is amazing. And it was still a small wave, but I could just see the potential right there off that very first wave. I could see the potential that this thing could do in terms of opening up surfing to the masses and creating environments that could allow people to connect with surfing more often, more frequently, and, and more safely, I guess. You know, we've been talking about sharks, but um, it really seemed right at that moment that everything I'd been doing in my corporate career to that point capital raising, legal, business plans, corporate finance, everything else, team building, running organizations was coalescing to allow me to devote that 
um, experience into you know bringing this new technology, this new business to to life, and that's that started the journey. So, in fact, I need to go back and check what day it was that I surfed in the lagoon. There, I could probably find out. But, it but I think if well you go be, into sorry, Karen. Oh, it's, no, I was going to say it may be it may well be seven years to the day today that I actually surfed that first wave in Spain. Wow, because I think there's a video online of Taj Burra um, from Wave Garden, and maybe you were surfing at the same time as him. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It was it was that weekend. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, it was one of the first. I think it was the first video that Wave Garden put out. I was there when they were filming it with Andy Higgins and the like. And we filmed it in the September, but I don't think they released it until the following June. So it was sort of in the can for quite a long time. So did you chat to Medina at all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a good chat with Gavin. Um, you weren't. You know, he was he was quite young back then. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, you weren't running up and saying, "Can I have an autograph, please?" <laughs> nah, no, nah, no. Nah. I, I, they're just sort of normal guys. You know, they were as frothing as I was, to be honest, to be surfing the wave and. Um, I think uh, there was one other Brazilian guy there as well. Um, I forget who that was, but um, yeah, it was yeah, it was amazing. Sorry. So obviously, as you say, that started the journey. Um, and with your background in, in investment banking, was it pretty easy to get to get funding? Or um, because I know Nick Hansfield from the Wave in Bristol, and he was saying he had to knock on two hundred and fifty doors to get investment, and that sounds like a, a long, hard road. How was it for you? Oh, it was it was the most difficult capital raising process I've ever been involved in. Um, I've, I've raised you know um, sums of money for a lot of different businesses, and um, when you, when you come to people with hey here's a uh, here's a technology that has never been built at full scale, it doesn't actually have a business model that's been proven. We don't really know how large the market is. Uh, we do have first mover advantage. We've got a monopoly position. There doesn't seem to be any other competitors, but I can't give you any real assurance as to what the revenues are that's going to be generated by this thing. And please give me $30 million. Um, it's, a, it's a bit of a tough ask. So I, I've spoken to Nick about it in the past. I, I think we probably knocked on about a similar number of doors. Um, and it's what, what I found from my experience in investment banking was I needed to answer very, very clearly and in detail every single question that I could about the business, recognizing that there was this fundamental unknown uh, associated with uh, revenue generation and you know that kind of build it and they will come approach. So we spent a huge amount of time doing market research, um, understanding capital costs, operating costs, um, you know, uh, the regulatory environment that we need to operate within, uh, et cetera. And it really was a journey because you know, WaveGarden have been solving a lot of the technical um, and engineering uh, issues around this technology, even since then, you know, from about 2016-ish onwards, and ours and and Nick's in um, Bristol are the sort of full realization of the code technology, and there's still things we've been solving even through this development process, which has been quite a challenge actually, as you've been trying to construct and and still try and solve issues with the Wave Garden guys as you go through. How did it feel the minute you got the funding? Was it a was it a quick cut and dried meeting, and you came out and screamed to the heavens? Uh, no, it was it was such a long process, and the, the way we closed that particular raise, it wasn't entirely clear um, 
that we had all the money in. It was I think it was somewhere we I think we closed just before Christmas 2017, and but all the funds weren't due until like the second week of January, and so and then we had to we just hit the ground running basically from that point. So it was a very quick celebration, and that was like let's get know, down to work. What yeah. have we got ahead of us? Yeah. So. You know, you, you basically can't do anything else when you're cap raising. You know, everything else in your business has to stop. That's the only thing you can focus on. And so then I immediately had to switch gears into uh, how do we actually now develop this thing, uh, complete design and get it going. So, um, yeah. But the, obviously getting all those feasibility studies to create this plan, to, to create the pitch, requires quite a lot of seed funding cash. So how did that come about? Yeah. Um, well, I guess once I'd surfed uh, the the old lagoon in Spain, um, I essentially had a lunch with Fernando the following day and we agreed terms where I, I personally was acquiring the rights to Western Australia for their technology. And um, I thought, great, this is a, a fun thing that'll keep me out of my wife's hair and my year off that uh, I mentioned before. You know, I wanted to have that year off in 2013. And it quickly grew uh, with the Wave Garden guys, they, they didn't really want to have multiple partners in multiple cities. And the relationship with them grew to a point where they offered us the rights to the rest of Australia. And I had a bunch of surfing buddies who, when I looked around, they were all public company directors or major stadium managers or engineers, developers. And I thought, well, oh, actually, we've got kind of the makings of a company just amongst the pals. So, and they were pushing very hard to uh, for me to pick up the rest of the rights and get involved and I just wanted to have a year off and travel and so anyway we raised some money amongst ourselves uh, purchased those rights and then I went on holidays for a year and then came back in beginning of 14 and wrapped a cold towel around my head and sat in a dark room thinking hmm okay how do we wrap a business model around this and how do you create a church to surfing how do you create it in a way that appeals to the core but doesn't um, make non-surfers or beginners feel intimidated and you know uh, what other offerings do you attach to it and how do you build community in in this space you know surfers typically a pretty solitary beast we turn up to a random car park or beach and do our thing and leave so how do you create a, a built form environment that is true and authentic to surfing so that, that was a really interesting architectural and planning and a design question to solve as well so um so it was self-funded then up until that stage yeah yeah so we we'd uh we pulled together some money amongst ourselves and that was sufficient to see us through for a few years um and uh allow us to secure this site in melbourne uh do all the the uh, preliminary design for that for sydney to go through the development application process there and achieve uh the uh, DA approval for the Sydney Olympic Park site and also the site in Perth uh, as well. So um, so we had a we had a portfolio of assets that we were bringing to the larger capital raising process, which proved to people we had a runway and further opportunities as well. Excellent, yeah. But just a question about the rights, because um, mm. obviously now with competitors popping up, like Surflex, for example, and um, potentially American Wave Machines, how valid are those rights? Because somebody can pop a surf lake right next to you and you've got a wave garden cove there. So that those rights aren't mm. valid essentially. How does that work? Well, um, I still, you know, from my, from our perspective, Urban Surf, we have the exclusive rights to the wave garden tech, but those rights are basically one way. So they have to sell to us. 
but we don't necessarily have to buy the WaveGarden tech. So we remain very interested in all the other developments and advancements in the surf park space. Uh, we're quite close to all of the different um, technology businesses. Um, from our perspective, the Cove is still the leading technology uh, for a variety of reasons which we can discuss. But um, I think the other point to make as well is um, first mover advantage is really important in this space. Uh, in the same way that a city will only have a limited number of stadiums or, or the like, a, a population will only be able to support a certain limited number of surf parks. So I think it would just be economic suicide for someone to set up a, a second surf park next to an existing one. And if you already have an existing one, you probably lock out competitors from those markets. Um, and then it comes down to a question of comparing the technologies against each other and see which one's uh, the most viable uh, economically and in terms of the quality of the waves they produce, the experiences, uh, the markets they serve. And I think at this point uh, in the game, the, the cove is sort of head and shoulders above everything else. Were there any times when you almost gave up in this long process? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I don't think so. There's been some dark times, of course. Um, you know, when you lay awake at night and worry about a whole bunch of things, but I don't think I've ever lost the passion for this. I, I, it's almost, you know, that Blues Brothers movie, We're on a Mission from God. You know, it, it's kind of like I've always known since that first wave in Spain that this is what I needed to be doing, and I had no doubt in my mind at all that it would be successful. I had no doubt that we were going to create amazing surfing experiences. The vision had always been incredibly clear. And I guess that's what sustained me uh, through all of this. I, you know, I'm 48 now. I've never worked harder in my life than I have in the last couple of years. But it doesn't feel and, like work, um, does it? it? Yeah, it kind of doesn't. If you're, you know, um, I came up with a phrase. I don't know if I should credit it to me or whether I've heard it somewhere else. But um, uh, it's, it's almost like uh, when you combine... Uh, passion with profession, you discover purpose. And I, I feel that's essentially what's happened for me over the last six or seven years that I've been involved in this space. So how did you come to the decision to go public um, marketing-wise? I mean, at what point does one get the press involved with a project like this? And, and at that stage, were you concerned about competition or bad press or activists and, and a lot of pushback? Yeah, it's been an interesting journey. We've, we've kept, uh, because I was a, in a public company in the oil and gas space, um, you don't put your head up until you need to. And we weren't seeking uh, to um, actively engage with the public or the media. Um, we really wanted to, and it's only really been in the last couple of months or so that we've started to accelerate because we know the lagoon is just about finished. Uh, we've got an opening date uh, sometime in the summer, December time perhaps. And, you know, you ramp up there. We always had this idea that there was a funnel. There's a very narrow point in the funnel where you just engage with people who are hardcore people that want to understand about the technology and the like, and you have conversations with them. And then it expands out a little further into the greater surfing community, perhaps, or maybe the leisure market. And then even further out again, just people want to know what hours you're open, what do I need to bring, do you have sun cream for sale, things like that. And so our, our marketing... Uh, strategy has sort of been linked to that funnel approach. We've also identified all the different key market segments that we need to be speaking with and we have different strategies around those. But for us, it, it's kind of like, uh, you know, under, under promise and over deliver, uh, if you can. Uh, we had a couple of challenges through construction, just finishing off our lagoon floor. We needed 
relatively dry conditions to do that and unfortunately it's been the wettest winter in about 60 years here in Melbourne uh, this winter. Unlucky. So that's pushed us back. At, yeah, very unlucky. So that pushed us back a, f a few months, missed our original date that we wanted to be open by, which was around Easter time. And then I guess what we're doing now is just completing the lagoon and we'll open into the summer rather than opening into the winter. So, yeah. So do you think you'll open before Bristol? Uh, I think the Bristol guys are planning to open in November. So um, I think we'll be after them. Um, so I know they're, they're in the process of commissioning their wave generator now. We're maybe a week or so behind them. Um, so, we, yeah, we're running sort of neck and neck at this stage. Yeah, it's amazing how close you are. I mean, if you just filled your pool and they just filled theirs, it's incredible. Yeah, no, um, the Wave Garden guys were expressing to me the other day that it's just an absolute perfect storm to have uh, two new projects looking to commission about the same time each. So. Well, there's something that I'd like to talk about a little as well with the Wave Garden guys, because obviously they've developed the lagoon technology in like as, as Snowdonia and, and Enland were using. And then it seemed to go yeah. quiet for a couple of years while they developed the cove. Um how, how would you feel if you had installed the lagoon technology and the cove came out? Yeah, it was, it's uh, a good question. In fact, we did that. So we signed up uh, the Melbourne site in, uh, we had our first conversations with Melbourne Airport in September 15. And by March, April time of uh, 16, we completed DD, we, we had a lease agreed, conditional lease, we'd received a development planning approval. And I think in the May time of that year, I, I uh, went to Spain full of the joys uh, that we'd secured our first site and ready to start the development planning with the guys. And Tosema took me to one side and said, oh, Andrew, we have something to show you. And uh, that sounded more like a Russian accent than a Spanish accent. <laughs> um, well, it's like... And I uh, said... That's it. And I said, uh, yes, what is it? And over the course of a day, they revealed to me the um, conceptual and even slightly more than that uh, development design for the cove. And they had a, had a working piston uh, at the R&D center. And even though they showed me that, I still couldn't conceive in my mind how the thing was meant to work. But they ran me through it all, all their CFD modeling. Um, they had a, a one-eighth scale uh, model and by the end of that day, I kind of finished and went, shit, we're going to have to rip up everything that we've just done. So the, the, the Cove technology was so much more compelling uh, than the, the Lagoon Wavefall style technology. And um, essentially, I came back from that trip and we had to renegotiate everything with the airport, rip up all of our design, go through all the new architecturals, all new engineering um all new development approval and so that pushed us back about 12 months actually so once that was completed that's when i commenced the capital raising in sort of mid 17 and wrapped that up at the end of 17. um there was another hiccup with the land in perth is that is that correct mm. yeah we've been working on the project there for a couple of years and um got to the point of we'd completed our development application and we're about to submit it to government and Unfortunately, the, the land, the site there that we'd selected in Perth is a beautiful site um, right on the river. It's a 22 hectare major sporting reserve. It's been used continuously for sports for about 60 years, but it's in a relatively wealthy suburb and had near neighbours who, uh, be fair to say, didn't really want to share. Um, and so we had a bit of opposition from those guys. They had the year of government 
to some extent. Uh, the project was widely supported in the community generally, but uh, unfortunately these residents treated this sporting reserve as an extension of their front lawns. They didn't want more activity there. Um, so uh, there was about 10% of the land area was a piece of crown land, um, which was actually managed by the local government. And we're looking to lease the whole of the site from the local government. Um, the, the other 90% was uh, freehold. And unfortunately, the state government said, yeah, look, we don't want to allow that to occur. Um, and uh, But in the same breath, they said, but we'll work with you to try and find an alternative site. Now, they could have made that decision, you know, the better part of 18 months, two years before that, and saved us half a million dollars and a lot of pain and angst from uh, a lot of the opposition that we'd received uh, from this small group of people. But, um, yeah, pleased to say that we're getting closer to a, a new site in Perth, which we hope to uh, speak about in more detail in the, in the coming couple of months. Okay, so it's Melbourne and then Perth and uh, Sydney as well. And you've got any other plans? Yeah. Yeah, we've uh, got a site in Brisbane that we're working on as well. And, um, it, you know, our business plan was to roll out 10 of these parks in Australia in 10 years. Um, so we're, uh, we're within that uh, time frame at the moment. And... We've got uh, several opportunities within the pipeline that we're pro progressing. Obviously, getting Melbourne complete has been the key priority for us, but um, with waves on in the, in the coming few weeks, um, that'll allow us to divert attention back to the pipeline. And we've started detailed design on our Sydney project at Olympic Park. It's going to be an amazing project there. Um, we hope to commence construction there in the, uh, the starting part of next year. And as, as far as each project goes, um, let's talk about uh, Melbourne, for example, because obviously that's that's launching yeah. imminently. What kind of what kind of offer? I mean, when I get there and I arrive there, I want to go for a surf. What kind of are you going to have accommodation? Yeah. You're going to have restaurants. What what kind of parks going to be? Yeah, for sure. So um, there's there's two different styles of mode, I guess, for a cove. One can be one that um, uh, suits a resident market and the other that suits a leisure market or a visitor market and I guess for us um, our business plan had always been to typically create resident based coves you know that a lot of the local community will be our, uh, our main uh, guests using it so we've in terms of the offering uh, we've tried to target the requirements and needs of that uh, local market um, so as you turn up to our particular facility if you're not surfing with us, you can just proceed around to the left. You can park. Uh, you don't have to pay anything. And you go into uh, our food and beverage uh, area, which is a 500 square meter restaurant and 300 square meter alfresco deck area. Uh, we announced the other month that we're partnering with the Three Blue Ducks, which is a quite a well-known restauranting group in, in the East Coast here of Australia. All the guys surf and they're they're awesome dudes and there's just an amazing kind of brand um, alliance between us and so they're going to be delivering incredible food and, and they're really a, a destination offering in themselves so that's going to be great and that's a really new thing for for melbourne if you're coming to us to hang out and want to be lagoon side you can pay a general admission fee and come in and use uh, we're, we're going to have hot tubs by the shoreline and kids climbing frames and uh, water features and skate areas and places to hang out and just chill and relax and just watch the surfing. Uh, or you can jump in the lagoon and come and have a wave with us as well. Excellent. Sounds like a fun place to be. It's pretty so far away from me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I think it's 
that's one of the interesting things for Melbourne surfers. You know, our research shows us there's about 250,000 active recreational surfers in Melbourne. And the closest surfing break to most of them is maybe an hour and a half drive away, you know, heading down to the surf coast or the Mornington Peninsula. And so we become the closest surfing break to Melbourne. And I guess, you know, quite convenient. And we've got uh, amazing lighting towers around the lagoon, uh, which makes the place look incredible at night time. Um, surfing under lights will be just a, an absolute joy. So I think that convenience aspect uh, is really going to serve the Melbourne surfing population really well. Are you looking at other models like uh, people in Brazil are looking at retail models where they're actually selling houses, residential models on the on the property or hotels? Um, there's people who are putting things in, putting wave garden coves and shopping centers apparently in Madrid. Um, have you looked at those kind yeah. of options? Yeah, we have. The, we've considered it in the context of the Australian market. So we're a very large continent, but we're only 25 million people. Uh, which is, you know, the size of a, a city, I guess, in Europe. And we're all spread out around the edge of our continent. So in terms of um, developing a destinational offering, which might have a uh, residential commercial um, offering associated with it, we have looked at those options. And there's a couple of spots in Australia here, which we're thinking about. Um, but largely the the model we're running with is to offer a surf-based leisure experience and sporting experience and try and locate that in the inner urban uh, areas uh, of major capital cities in Australia. And um, yeah, so that's that's the, the business plan that we've been following, although there are a couple of slightly different projects we're looking at, which will have a accommodation hotel offering linked to it as well. Hence the name, Urban Surf, right? Yeah, that's yeah. it, exactly. Yeah. So it's, uh, I guess... Um, we, I'd always thought, um, you know, everyone used to call it rollerblading and before it was called inline skating. And the reason no one calls it rollerblading anymore is because the company Rollerblade that came up with the first skates didn't like people infringing their trademark. And so I th always thought when I came up with the name Urban Surf, I wanted to create a contrast to ocean-based surfing. And I thought, well, what would that be? And, you know, could people refer to what we're doing as urban surfing, you know, as a as a, a type of surfing activity and, and we just dropped the a out of urban to give it that sort of well you've got a ur and a ur in urban and surf and you've got four letters at the top and four letters at the bottom and quicksilver doesn't have a c so we thought yeah that's probably not a bad uh, <laughs> a bad brand to go with and the domain was available so that's good yeah that was uh, it must be quite an interesting marketing chat when you when you named it but um yeah 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 um, this is quite interesting when you're talking about um, calling it urban surfing as opposed to ocean surfing. Um, there, mm. There's a there's an actual sort of like a, it's almost like a tour in the center of Europe and they call it rapid surfing where they surf. Have you heard about mm. those guys? I have, yeah, I have. Which is fun because obviously yeah. they're using flow riders and, and river waves and all that kind of stuff and surfing around Munich, which is another form of surfing. So I guess, and we can get into the future of surfing now, but it's, it might splinter into some smaller disciplines, I think. Um, but I think so, and we've we've seen that in a whole bunch of other sports. And um, you know, I often think of uh, snowboarding as a bit of an analogy. You know, everyone used to just ride big mountain, and then you and, and you know ride you know uh, backcountry and the like. And then when you started getting these man-made um, terrain parks, you know you had the emergence of freestyle and and the like. And then people getting into these subdisciplines within even freestyle. You know whether they're riding bowls or whether they're 
you know, the half pipe or doing rails or whatever it would, might be, border cross and the like. And I guess we haven't really had that opportunity in surfing because we've always been beholden to Mother Nature. And now that we can harness Mother Nature in a sense and create waves which are quite authentic surfing waves, I think it will allow the emergence of different splinter subsets of surfing. And we have seen that recently, I guess, in the last 10 years where you've got you know, the, the big wave uh, surfing league and you've got you know, a really dedicated longboarding league and um, you know, different types of surfing kind of emerging in the ocean as well uh, with people pursuing different uh, sort of facets of it or riding particular types of boards or the like. So, um, yeah, I just see this as part of that evolution and development in surfing. I just see that's a perfect segue to talk about the Freshwater Pro because it's such a different competition mm. to the rest of the championship tour and it hasn't gone down so well at all. I don't know if you watched it this last weekend, but um, it's the second edition of the championship tour. Yeah. So how that's do you it. feel yeah, about I, the future I, I, of surf contests and, and artificial wave pools? I've, I've said this before. I am still yet to be convinced. I, I, I have a sense that the type and quality of waves that man-made environments can produce is not yet up to scratch to meet the um, skill of truly professional, you know, high-level surfers. I think for mugs like you and me and, um, and kind of normal people, normal folk, uh, man-made waves and urban surfing environments will be absolutely fine for amateur surf leagues and you know, we've got a, an amazing um, little model here in Melbourne where we're going to have, um, uh, you know, say teams of four competing on a Tuesday night against maybe six or eight other teams of four. Each of us have 15 waves each. Your best wave is judged and added to a team-based score, 10-week season, you know, finals, a pro-am, almost like indoor cricket, for but for surfers. And I think that's a really interesting way for people who perhaps have never competitively surfed uh, to just engage with the sport in that kind of competitive fashion, but in a team-based fashion. And these urban surfing environments allow that to occur. How will you be judging um, them? But when you, well, I think um, in the in a similar sort of way to you would judge ocean-based surfing and um, you know on turns to the beach and uh, the you uh, you know how how uh, radical your turns are and, and those sorts of things. Um, you can always throw in different random style waves and, you know, vary it up a bit as well, which will be, and you could probably also add a time-based limit to it as well. You can make it quite a, a, a fast, um, you get the, the heartbeat racing type way of uh, competing, which is different to perhaps sitting out in the lineup waiting for a, a set to arrive and you sit there for 15 minutes waiting. But um, yeah, I've, I, I've watched a few waves at Lemoore and... I don't know. I, I had this sense that um, that pro surfing in a man-made environment might be a little bit like Sean White, you know, competing in a half pipe at the at the X Games, and you know, you can all these little fine tweaks and you know grabs and things that snowboarders can do, which they get extra points for, which show degree of difficulty. I thought maybe that's where surfing might go, but I just don't think that Lamore actually allows that to happen because I think all the the future and the advancement in surfing is actually above the lip. It's not the barrel anymore. And I don't think Lamore really does offer that opportunity with uh, aerial surfing. So, yeah, I don't know. I think it's just a bit of an open question at the moment. I, I hear from some of the Wassel people that uh, Kelly's 
Paul probably isn't going to be on tour next year. Um, so uh, we'll, we'll have to see how that plays out. I've never heard the WSL referred to as the Wassel. Is that a thing in Australia? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure how that's uh, come about. I guess we tend to take the piss out of everything. So uh, this is another example of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing is with the Wavegarden Cove, you potentially have the, op the, the option to randomize waves and create a similar to ocean vibe. Uh, or feeling, I mean, yeah. or, or simulation. So the, the, you could try and do a normal surf competition, obviously a bit more shorter. Um, mm. so. Yeah, it's, it's exactly right. And, you know, I think, you know, that was one of the major reasons that we switched to the Cove technology away from the Lagoon technology. You know, I think um, the ability to push through a thousand uh, two-meter-high barreling or, you know, wedgie or whatever types of waves here where you've got that, flexibility and variety uh, as compared to the Lagoon Tech where everything was very fixed. You know, your, your wave foil's fixed, the angle of incline of the blade is fixed, the bathymetry's fixed, the speed at which it travels is fixed. And so there, there wasn't really a lot of variety there with, with that tech. But um, with this new third generation, as I call it, of, of uh, surf park technology, where you've got a modular system, you know, and the American Wave Machines, um, uh, system is a modular one. You know, it's a it's a pneumatic air compressor based version which pushes water out, and the Cove is uh, electromechanical where it uses mechanical force to push water out, but in a modular basis. So you can change the peel and the um, angle of the waves. You can change the height, the speed, the shape, and all those sorts of things. I think it's a significant improvement on uh, on the old wave foil style of technology. Okay, so. Um I'm mindful of your time. I don't think we have that much time left. Um, but just a couple of questions about the wave pool industry. So how fast yeah. is it growing? I mean, let's break it down. How many dedicated commercial wave pools will be open across the globe next year in 2020? Do you reckon four or five? Uh, yeah, well, we have obviously Andy Ainsco's uh, park in Snowdonia. Um, we've got Enland, which has just been, uh, Doug Coors has sold that to, to the Wassel and uh, they uh, Kelly's team's redeveloping that into a Kelly Lagoon, as I understand it. Um, we've got uh, the, the Waco BSR uh, surf park. Uh, they'll have ours. We'll have Bristol. Uh, I know that um, Andy Haddon in Edinburgh is sort of underway with some of his construction for the, his cove up there. And I believe there's a there's there's a, a deluge of coves that are coming. All of them sitting back waiting to see. I think to some extent. Uh, the final product, which uh, we'll deliver here in Melbourne and, and Nick's delivering in Bristol. Um, I think Wave Garden have something like 22 projects sort of signed up and you know, money down uh, and in partly, partway through the development process. So there is a, there is a big um, pipeline of these types of projects coming along. Uh, they do take a lot of time and a lot of effort, a lot of money to deliver. But um, yeah, over the next five years, I think there's going to be a pretty big explosion of uh, surf parks around the world. So you reckon that'll start 21, 22 maybe? Yeah, I think so. I think um, uh, with, you know, surf lakes still have a bit of work to go, I think, improving up their technology. I think they've probably got some bathymetry issues they still need to solve. Um, I, I worry that their technology kind of combines some elements of the former versions uh, or generations of tech, um, you know, having 
single point failures in the design with single massive pieces of equipment. Uh, the waves that generate radiate out from that central plunger, but they're not imparting any energy into the wave as it travels away. So it's losing height, shape, speed, power as it progresses out. Similar to the old wave pool designs, which are the pump and dump systems like Wadi Adventure and the like. Um, that would be like so, the first generation that yeah, you were referring to earlier, right? Yeah, that's right. So the first generation is like uh, Wadi Adventure, which I guess is the pinnacle of, uh, of that form of technology. Um, you've then got the wave foil technology, the second gen, which Kelly's is the pinnacle of. And now we're moving into this third gen, which is the modular-based systems where you've got the Cove and American Wave Machines as the two uh, forms of tech at the moment. So, um, yeah, I, I think um, it's a really interesting space. You know, we, we keep up to date with um, everything that's going on. And I, I do believe Wave Garden have the... The leading technology at the moment they've got a huge number of people signed up ready to roll projects out um, i think we're going to see a hell of a lot of coves uh, being produced in the next uh, few years excellent so what are some future milestone milestones for urban surf that you're really looking forward to just to close out wow there's there's so many and, and we almost we're achieving them almost every day because we're coming down to the pointy end um, uh, for me personally, it's it's getting uh, first waves in the lagoon here in Melbourne. You know that that's just going to be the culmination of a, a number of years worth of work. But equally, I think uh, those first lessons that we deliver to the public in in Melbourne is going to be of almost equal importance to me. Um, I think one of the true measures of our success is um, how uh, memorable that first surfing experience some little eight-year-old kid will have. Uh, in our lagoon and whether they can carry that with them throughout the rest of their lifelong journey with surf you know and, and remember back to that day that they first stood up and that was at urban surf melbourne and i see that as a, a huge responsibility for our ops team and our guys to deliver on you know and i I've, I've often told the story of when i first stood up on a board and lawn and how that's stayed with me through 38 years of surfing uh, and I, I see that as being a, a truly important thing for us um, I guess, you know, rolling out the second project in Sydney and then the third and the fourth is, is really quite important. Um, I'm looking at um, other projects across the globe, you know, now that we've done it once. Other people are keen to uh, have us uh, assist them in, in what they're doing with their projects. And I, I, that's, for me, is a really uh, fascinating and interesting part of uh, this job. You know, I, I'm, I love new ventures and I love getting new projects off the ground. Um, and so I'm, I'm really keen to support and assist uh, other groups and we're working with a few different groups at the moment on their projects. Uh, so that's, that's something I'm really looking forward to over the coming years as well. Excellent. Well, Andy, thanks so much for your time. I really hope uh, in future uh, editions of this podcast we'll have you back and to, to catch up and, and see because obviously a lot's going on down there in Australia. So thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. No, not at all, Nick. been lovely talking to you and uh, happy to chat with you again. ran over there 55 minutes done and i'm only aiming for 30 minutes so sorry about that but it was just i think you might agree it was really really interesting conversation and um we dug deep into the story of urban surf if you're keen to comment and leave your opinion please head over to our instagram it's wavepoolmag on instagram um, because we'll be putting up a relevant post 
every week where you can dig into the conversation and be heard. We'd love to hear your constructive criticism, please. And uh, if you like this podcast, please head over to Apple Podcasts or iTunes and leave a review. I know, I know it's a pain in the butt to do it, but we really do appreciate a good review. It helps us in the iTunes rankings and helps so many more people to hear about us. You can also share this podcast with your mates. If you don't know how, just ask. So our show notes are on www.wavepoolmag.com forward slash podcast. So get over there to check out any relevant links and locations that we've mentioned in this podcast. Thanks once again so much for listening. And I'm looking forward to hearing some feedback from you guys. So I'll see you next week.